a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you are liberty curious, you're in the right place. You're among friends. I would say this is a safe space, but you know what? You don't need a safe space. You just need a little courage, a little bit of backbone, and the determination to march forward and boldly claim your autonomy as a human being with natural rights and uh, therefore, you know, the ability to make your own choices. Think for yourself. And I'm here to encourage you to do exactly that. A lot of interesting things happened since the last time we got together. Um, this is one of the big ones. And I, I don't spend a lot of time on politics, but I will say, interesting. There is a new president of Argentina, Javier Millet. And this guy's a libertarian and he's pretty hardcore. And it's, it, I mean, I know there's comparisons. Well, you know, he's just basically the South American Donald Trump. That's not true. In fact, I'm going to give you some reasons why he's not just a Trump clone. But when's the last time you heard a politician, at least, you know, at, at the uh, national leader level, um, say things like, now, and, and I'm not saying you should agree with everything, but when did you hear one speak out and say, you know what, Pope Francis is a filthy less leftist. Yeah, he's calling out the Pope for certain left-wing, you know, policies the Pope supports. He says this redistribu- redistributing wealth is a violent act. That is pretty libertarian. It's also uh, very well-founded in the basic principles of right and wrong. Redistributing wealth doesn't become a nonviolent act just because you dress somebody up in a magical costume, give them a badge to pin on it, and then tell them, now go take money from that person or throw them in jail. Sorry, I'm boiling down government for, for what it really is, though. This is why we don't, uh, we don't give it free reign and turn to it as the source of all of our answers for every problem in life. This is an interesting quote from him. He called, uh, this President Millet called climate change a lie of socialism. Interesting. His governing philosophy is you can't give, I can't say the word he says, but crap leftists an inch. He pledges to end the Central Bank of Argentina. I guess that means we'll be going to war with them before too long. And his view on China is that he doesn't cut deals with communists. Here's the one that really blows me away, though. Listen to his views on abortion. He says, when you construct on the basis of an incorrect moral principle, the result is filth. He kind of likes that word. How can being able to kill another human being, how can being able to kill other human beings be a right gained? As a liberal, he says, I believe in the unrestricted right to life based on the defense of life, liberty, and property. I defend life. Biology says that life begins with conception. Dang. I, I don't know of many American politicians that would would be that bold. I think that's awesome. And uh, let's see, one other one. Oh, this is a great quote. This is uh, Javier Millet who says, Mickey Mouse is the aspiration of every Argentine politician because he's a disgusting rodent whom everybody loves. (laughs) I have to laugh about that just because I'm dealing with mice. It's been colder weather, and so out here in uh, in rural America, the mice are looking for a warmer place to, to hang out for the winter. And so, yeah, 
been setting traps and all that kind of stuff. Just the whole thing. He's a disgusting rodent whom everybody loves. Yep, that's exactly what uh, what politicians want. Everybody to love them. But uh, it, the point is, to people who love freedom, this guy is a dream come true. And yet, there's a lot of folks compare him to Trump, and that's just not the case. Now, I actually had the opportunity to interview a young man from Argentina just a few weeks ago about this, and um, he wasn't very hopeful that uh, that Millet was going to carry this off. And I don't know that it's because he was necessarily a supporter or whatever. He just said, yeah, it's it's pretty much neck and neck. We'll see how it goes, but, you know, it's, it's not a, a slam dunk by anything. But uh, I, I want to share with you some thoughts from, this is from Federico Fernandez, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. And Fernando says, if you want to understand Javier Millet, turn your eyes to Central Europe and the Baltics, not to Trump, excuse me, to Trump Tower. He says, after the primaries, a prevailing narrative has painted Argentina's presidential candidate, Javier Millet, with the same brush as former American President Donald Trump. Keep in mind, this article was written, uh, or published rather, back on, uh, I believe it was September 7th. Now, the, art, the author, Fernando, or, uh, Federico Fernandez, rather, says, if you were to uh, paint Javier Millet with the same brush as former American Donald Trump, would be to misunderstand Millet's vision and principles. The superficial resemblances between Millet and Trump may seem apparent to the casual observer. And by the way, one of the big ones is their hair. Both of them have pretty out-of-control hair. But if you dig deeper, the distinction is clear. He says, Javier Millet is not a mere populist figure seeking attention with polarizing speeches. He is, in essence, a radical reformist eager to sever the bonds with the cycle of decline that's plagued Argentina since Peronism ascended to power in 1946. Millet is under no illusion that the existing system could or should be saved. See, that's refreshing too. And his ambitions do not lie in compromising with the populist strategies that have historically failed Argentina. Now, maybe you were aware, maybe not, um, to grasp the scale of Argentina's economic decline, you got to consider the fate of its currency. Once their peso, the Argentine peso, was on a par with the U.S. dollar, now the exchange rate is closer to 800 pesos to a single dollar. And, I, and I'm going to remind you, not because I'm trying to be mean, but uh, the U.S. dollar ain't doing so hot either as far as it's lost, uh, what, 95, 98% of its purchasing power over the last uh, century or so. Nevertheless, much like this devalued currency, Argentina's national health care and public education systems have been reduced to mere shadows of their intended purpose. The dire lack of public hospitals reveals a system woefully under-equipped, lacking even basic supplies like gauze and antibiotics. 2021 witnessed a startling departure from public schools with nearly 700,000 students dropping out. And whether due to a crippling shortage of resources or the grim realities of child labor, the outcome is consistent and disheartening. Only about 10% of students manage to graduate high school on time. So in response to this bleak landscape, now you have Mele advocating for a total transformation. And what he's looking at is an Argentine economy anchored in principles of free markets, private property, Western values, and the nation's classical liberal constitution, which draws inspiration from Juan Bautista Alberti. So rather than peddling baseless conspiracy theories or pointing fingers at marginalized groups, 
Melee gives voice to a sentiment growing, particularly among the, uh, among the country's youth. Argentina's statist, highly taxed, uber-regulated economy has collapsed. And it's irredeemable. Interesting take, huh? By the way, if you really want to know, Clearly, you know, the author here does not care much for for Trump, but he says, if you want a more accurate comparison of uh, of who Millet is is like, he says, you should probably look towards Central Europe and the Baltics if you want to draw some global parallels. In these regions, reformists didn't just aim, aim to amend the preceding system. They wanted to replace it, prioritizing a free market economy and individual rights. And he gives examples of a couple of figures that come to mind for this. But the point here is simply equating Millet with Trump oversimplifies the Argentine's distinct perspective. If you really want to grasp Millet's intentions, you got to return to the reformist legacies of Central Europe and the Baltic. So Argentina might be on the brink of an epical shift. The path is not directed at Trump's America, but toward the revolutionary paths carved by some of these other individuals from Europe and from the Baltic states. Seeing nothing redeemable in Argentina's populist edifice, Mele contends it should be torn down, reminiscent of the disintegration of communism in the wake of the Berlin Wall's fall. Kind of an interesting take, just, you know, a little bit different uh, perception, but it's encouraging to me in the sense that uh, there comes a point where people will finally put their feet down and say, no. And I'm sure that scares the heck out of the the ruling class, right? We're supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to to just shut up and do what they tell us. Well, I'm glad to see there's somebody who is is leading out and saying, "Uh uh-uh. And it it gives me hope, too, that, uh, you know, this this is a guy who apparently is supported by the up-and-coming voters, the younger voters. Look, I don't want to sound like the old man that I clearly am, but if we are not uh, teaching and promoting the principles of of liberty and the practices of liberty to those who are are younger than us, and and I'm looking specifically at the millennials and, and Gen Z, if we're not doing our part, to help them understand these things, not just by telling them about it, but by by living these principles. We're missing a great opportunity. And I have a hunch. I'm still trying to prove this, but I have a theory that uh, there are actually more and more freedom-minded young people than probably us old farts. But because they don't have as much experience or maybe they haven't been exposed to some of these ideas, it still sounds like a foreign language to them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you so much for being a listener. Thanks to those of you who are supporters of this show. If you are so inclined, you may feel free to tell your friends. I'm I'm not asking anybody, hey, please keep this on the down low. Don't tell anybody that I'm talking about freedom or truth or, uh, you know, becoming a better version of yourself as the most radical revolutionary act that you can commit. Please don't tell anybody. Please. No, I'm just kidding. That's that's reverse psychology at work. All right. I I hate to do it, and this is not for you, but uh, this is for, for those who doubted. This is an I told you so. So uh, the new Speaker of the House has uh, released the remaining January 6th footage 
Holy cow. The footage that was released just in the last few days, what I've seen, sure does seem to show that uh, we were not told the true story. There's two things particularly that come to mind. I've got an article here from Tyler Durden from Zero Hedge talking about how the new J6 footage shows Capitol Police may have incited a riot by firing munitions into a peaceful crowd. So with House Speaker Mike Johnson releasing over 40,000 hours of J6 footage, including Capitol Police body cam footage to the public in the interest of transparency, he did an action that should have taken place years ago. And each piece of footage only confirms what many of us have already understood, that the scant few minutes of available video recycled by the media and the J6 committee paints a false picture of what really happened. Many would argue that J6 was nothing more than a protest turned into a riot by police incitement and establishment spin. But even worse, there are many people now languishing in prison because of that spin. And I'm not just talking, well, they sent him away for a few weeks. No, we're talking decades. So this latest footage shows Capitol Police inviting protesters into the building as they peacefully assembled in the corridors. Interestingly enough, some of the early ones who are coming in Sometimes in handcuffs, the Capitol Police unlock their handcuffs, pat them on the back, and send them on their way. There's at least one video footage thing of a guy coming in dressed clearly as a protester. He's got the MAGA hat on and everything, a mask over his face, but he's holding a badge, which lends credence to the idea, well, there were, in fact, then, undercover officers in that crowd, which begs the question, why weren't they stopping the breach of the Capitol rather than actually playing along with it or doing it. I know, it's, it's looking more and more like this was a gigantic setup. This was a staged event. How, do we, how, could, how could we ever consider that? Well, why did Nancy Pelosi have professional videographers? Why did she have a professional film crew with her following her around at the Capitol? It's because the plan was this is how we're gonna this is how we're gonna shut down Trump and his supporters forever by by tarring them and associating them with this act of violence. But let's let's go back here for a few moments. I mean, I'm I'm looking at there's a link to the article here. Um, this is a tweet from Brandon Straka showing uh, footage of Matthew Perna. He's wearing a red sweatshirt, walking calmly in the Capitol. Seriously, these are some of the first people who came in. And Matthew pled guilty to initial charges, believing, well, he might face 6 to 12 months in prison. But it's only after they got his guilty plea, then the DOJ told this guy, oh, by the way, we're adding a terrorism enhancement. Meaning he he could spend decades in jail. That would add nine years, actually, to his sentence. So, four days after receiving news that DOJ's pushing for the sentencing enhancement, this uh, Matthew Perna went into his garage, put a rope around his neck, and hanged himself. Pretty crappy thing to do. But that's uh, that's your government at work. Now, what about before the riot started? Okay, you can you can see for yourself if you want if you want to see the footage that shows police officers waving people through, patting them on the back, smiling, talking to them. There was nothing violent going on. Most of the people coming into that building are coming in. Just walking in peacefully, looking around, taking pictures. But what got the actual clash between the crowd and the police started? Well, 
There are video clips that show the Capitol Police firing rubber bullets, tear gas grenades, and stun grenades into crowds of peaceful protesters before anybody tried to enter the Capitol building. In fact, this is possibly what triggered the violence that would follow and, of course, creating the footage played ad nauseum on major news networks as proof of insurrection. By the way, Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, was supposed to show us a lot of this footage. And uh, Tucker Carlson's producer and his team at Fox were given all of this last year, right? And then, then they let, uh, let Tucker go. But I'm looking at video right here. J6 protesters fired on with no warning. U.S. Capitol Police Chief Waldo, Waldo says, well, I gave warnings, but he never did. Now, keep in mind, if police had used these kind of tactics to get the BLM or pro-Palestinian rioters fired up, there'd be news coverage of it 24-7, but not with J6. So why was this footage withheld from the country for so long? I mean, come on, this is, this is not that difficult to figure out. I would be interested to hear or actually to watch some of the mental gymnastics that defenders of the regime might resort to to explain, well, no, 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 this is, this is, everything is still exactly as we said. But basically we know now that this 40 plus, 40,000 plus hours of video footage was withheld to control the narrative, to keep the evidence under lock and key, to prevent us from seeing what our eyes would tell us is not the violent insurrection that we have been sold ever since January 6, 2021. Now, look, I don't know where do you go from here. Clearly, the, the news media is not, not touching this. They, they, they will ignore it. If, if we don't say it, it's not real. Yeah, they probably stick their fingers in their ears and make noise, too, when someone's talking, no, 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 I can't hear you. <laughs> Whatever. But for those of us out here in the real world, this would indicate that uh, somebody, and maybe a lot of somebodies, some very powerful somebodies, went to considerable length to prevent us from knowing what is true and what isn't. I don't know about you, but that to, to me, that seems like a breach of, of trust at the very least. Unethical? Absolutely. Illegal? Probably. So what exactly are you suggesting? Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm not sure. But I think the people who push that narrative, I don't care if they're <clears throat> Democrat, I don't care if they're Republican, I don't care if they're independent. I don't care if it's just the news reporters. Every single one of them should be separated from power. Starting with the politicians, the news media that went along with this, I mean, if they had any integrity, if they had any kind of, of conscience, they would resign in shame. But they're not going to do that. They'll double down. Not only were we right, but we were so right because of these MAGA extremists. And, oh, look, here's President Biden standing in front of a Nazi backdrop, or at least it looks like one, and he's uh, talking about the greatest threat to America. So just keep in mind, you know, I, look, I'm, you don't have to agree with anything that I've just shared with you here. All I'm pointing out is these are some pretty big holes in that narrative that we were supposed to believe. Oh, yeah, Trump incited a, uh, an insurrection. He got people fired up. He got people killed. Yeah, the media still repeats that lie. And just for the record, just so we're clear, four police officers 
committed suicide or died of other causes after January 6th. But the majority of police officers who died took their own lives. Of the protesters who died, there were a couple who I think died of heart attacks. One, the only one who died violently was Ashley Babbitt, shot to death by a Capitol Police officer, who I believe then was awarded a medal of some sort. I don't want to sound vindictive when I say this, but I am looking forward to this whole reeking edifice crashing down and finally, you know, losing its place among the stars. I'm eager to help build what comes next, too, but mostly I'm really glad to see this system fall. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So in my home state of Idaho, when uh, Roe v. Wade fell, it triggered an Idaho abortion law, which is among the strictest in the nation. We do not have exceptions except for the life or health of the mother. I don't believe, I'm not sure, I'll have to double check. I'm not sure that uh, there are even exceptions for rape or incest. But the idea is it's harder to get a to get an abortion in Idaho than it is in other places. And of course, the corporate press has been absolutely going bonkers. Well, look at all these doctors. All these doctors are just leaving Idaho and this is what's going on. And um I, I've heard that before. I question how many of those doctors are actually leaving. But I have to tell you my attitude for the most part is well, good. Go with God. Or if you don't believe in God, go with, uh, you know, Baal or whoever, you know, go with whatever, go where you are comfortable and go where you are able to live as you want to live. But don't be sad that you couldn't convince more of your fellow citizens here in the state of Idaho that uh, butchering babies or for that matter, surgically mutilating kids is a good thing. John Green writing for AmericanThinker.com says Idaho faces a re- reproductive health care crisis. But he says, you know, the one where women's rights are being threatened, namely the right to end any life she created. Well, he says, in Idaho, women are facing a genuine reproductive health care problem, and that is woke doctors. After the Dobbs decision, the Idaho state legislature made all abortions illegal unless pregnancy threatens the woman's life. Now OBGYN doctors are in open revolt against the law, insisting that abortions must be a legal alternative, not just for the life of the woman, but for her health as well. And why not? I mean, come on, this is just an aside here. But the health thing is a very nebulous concept. Why is it causing her to lose sleep at night while that's affecting her health? In other words, you can you can twist health into pretty much anything. Now, these devoted health care providers aren't lobbying for legislative changes and they're not spending their weekends educating the public on the issues. They're quitting their jobs. They're moving to more enlightened states, says John Green. According to CBS News, over 50% of the physicians specializing in high-risk pregnancies will have left Idaho by the end of the year. Now, these doctors want us to trust their judgment as it pertains to women's health. If we refuse their demand, they won't do anything for women's health. They'll just take their medical bag and leave. 
So he says, I'd like to know, does dumping their patients who need them the most square with their Hippocratic oath or hypocritic oath? (laughs) But there's a problem with asking us to trust their judgment. You ready for this? The entire medical profession has spent years discrediting itself and showing no willingness to hold its practitioners accountable for professional ethics. Confidence in the industry has been in sharp decline in recent years. Gallup now reports that almost two-thirds of Americans lack confidence in our medical institutions. Is anybody in the industry asking how that happened or what the industry should do about it? When the entire medical industry came out in support of Obamacare, That's what pierced the institution's bubble of professionalism. We knew that the legislation was ill-advised when doctors and hospitals supported it. That's when we realized, oh, their judgment isn't infallible. That's when many of us started paying attention. He says in more recent years, medical professionals have put their wokeness on public display. Take, for example, Dr. Bandy Lee, a Yale-affiliated psychiatrist. After watching Donald Trump on TV, she called a group of her fellow medical professionals together to work up a mental diagnosis of the Donald. And they decided that he's dangerously mentally unstable, and they publicly released their diagnosis, committing two ethical violations in the process. Now, Dr. Lee said, well, my... uh, My duty to inform the public superseded my oath. But somehow it never occurred to her that her impression of Trump might have been a bit flawed, given the one-sided coverage of the mainstream media. Yet she insisted the public should trust her judgment, even writing a book about Trump's mental state. So, was Dr. Lee subjected to a formal ethics review or in any way hindered from practicing? Nope. She was not held accountable in any meaningful way. And that's when some of us realized that the profession, the medical profession, does not police itself. We must scrutinize it. He says, we've also experienced three years of COVID medical hysteria. Mask up responsibly, even though masks don't work. Every responsible citizen must get the vaccine that doesn't prevent the illness. If you don't get the vax, you're risking the lives of those who did. And be sure to get a booster every six months. It doesn't prevent the illness, but it does increase Dr. Fauci's royalty checks. Yes, it's all very confidence-inspiring. And while all that nonsense was going on, we were told that the vax was perfectly safe, even though they did very little testing, and most of us have some anecdote to the the contrary. Speaking of anecdotes, he says, let me tell you my story. I acquired persistent AFib after receiving the vax. My cardiologist recommended a COVID booster and surgical procedure, procedure. I said yes to the procedure and no to the booster, much to his chagrin. While recuperating in the hospital, I overheard two of my nurses talking outside my room. One stated that her boss, my doctor, told her that if she gets a COVID booster, she may get AFib also, as the shot causes swelling of the heart. After I was returning from my surgery, I was informed by my doctor's office that he was leaving the practice and wouldn't be available for my post-surgical care. So my doctor was recommending a medication for me that he wouldn't recommend for his staff, and yet talked me into a surgery when he knew he wouldn't be available to make sure it was successful. Yet I'm supposed to trust my health is his foremost concern. Okay, that's a good observation. So what might happen if we trust the protesting reproductive health care physicians? They say their only concern is a woman's health. Is there any chance their concern is based on the Turnaway study? This was done by University of Michigan economist Sarah Miller, 
University of California at San Francisco demographer Diana Green Foster and New York University economist Laura Wherry. And the study concluded that the financial health of women denied abortions is negatively and significantly impacted. But the authors didn't stop at financial hardships. As Foster said, the biggest differences we saw besides the socioeconomic differences are in physical health. That's consistent with the medical literature that shows that carrying a pregnancy to term, the many months of continued pregnancy of childbirth, are associated with greater risk than having an abortion, even a later abortion. Okay, so let's translate what this doctor is saying. Pregnancy threatens a woman's health because it's hard on her body. Who knew? The American Psychological Association also entered the debate, issuing an opinion that restricting abortion will likely lead to mental health harms. This is what it said. Research shows people who are denied abortions are more likely to experience higher levels of anxiety, lower life satisfaction, and lower self-esteem compared with those who are able to obtain abortions. Notice that doesn't say anything about the, the guilt that a woman might feel, wondering what might have become of the, the young life that she just terminated. Interesting. Now, if our protesting doctors were given the authority to use their judgment to decide when an abortion for a woman's health is warranted, would they be inclined to reach that conclusion for a woman's financial health? Anxiety? How about lowered self-esteem or lowered life satisfaction or just the wear and tear of carrying a baby to term is unhealthy? And if they were granted the authority to use their judgment, would the scientific conclusions, that's in quotation marks, stated above, give doctors a license to justify all abortion requests? Or would they stand firm that the above is not what the public meant by a health of the mother exception? What has their profession done to make us trust them to do the latter rather than the former. That's a good point. John Green's point here is also that our institutions require credibility to be effective. When they squander their credibility, social order suffers. The media squandered their credibility for narrative, preferred propaganda. Law enforcement promised equal protection under the law, but delivered political persecution. The intelligence community demanded our trust, then surveilled us rather than our foreign enemies. Now the medical industry is following other institutions down the same destructive path of placing ideology above ethics. Canons of ethical behavior and the oaths sworn by practitioners have become meaningless. So John Green says the doctors fleeing Idaho are living the consequences of their profession, having ignored its ethical standards and squandering our trust. And he says it's all on them. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I don't, I don't stress a whole lot, but then, you know, some would say, well, that's because you're a white male. You're not in danger of having a baby. You're not, uh, you know, carrying a baby to term. Okay, well, you got me there, but at the same time, I'm also someone who I feel has a pretty strong stake in, in the whole adoption and abortion debate, being adopted myself, having adopted a child. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that anything is made better by terminating an innocent life. And I do understand there are health reasons, and I mean real, like concern for the mother's health. If you have this baby, your heart will give out and you will die. That's what they told my mother-in-law back before she gave birth to my wife. I'm glad she ignored the medical advice that they gave her at that time to terminate that pregnancy and the two others that came after it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got a couple great articles to share in this final segment. I'm feeling a little bit froggy today, and I don't know if it's just, you know, because uh, this this Argentine uh, libertarian won their presidency, and I'm like, all right, finally, there's a crack in the facade. Maybe maybe the global governance uh, Borg isn't as powerful as it seems, but I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling kind of defiant today. That's why I recommend as our article of the day, Gary Gallas has a great introduction to the Sage of Baltimore, H. L. Mencken, and how he exposed government's rotten core with wit and wisdom. Now he wasn't just tearing down, though. I have to point this out. What made Mencken great was at the at the root of his criticisms of government was a commitment to liberty. In fact, Gary Gallus says it was a radical commitment to liberty. That's what makes him worth remembering today. So Henry Louis Mencken, sage of Baltimore, born September 12, 1880. This guy was a newspaper man, an essayist, a satirist, a social critic, perhaps America's most outspoken defender of liberty in the first half of the 20th century. Reflecting the difference between what was defensible as consistent with preserving our rights and uh, what government did, the major theme of his writings was that every decent man is ashamed of the government he lives under. So it's worth remembering that some of the reasons that uh, Mencken offered to justify that shame, since by his standards, is our government is even, more, is even more shameful today than what he wrote. He says the basest the basis justifying shame in our government lies in the appropriate role of government. Here's how, how uh, Mencken put it. Mencken said, The ideal government of all reflective men from Aristotle onward is one which lets the individual alone, one which barely escapes being no government at all. Good government, he says, is that which delivers the citizen from being done out of his life and property too arbitrarily and violently one that relieves him sufficiently from the barbaric business of guarding them to enable him to undertake in gentler, more dignified, and more agreeable undertakings. Of course, the problem is that our government has exploded in a torrent far beyond those proper bounds. As Mencken would put it, law and its instrument, government, are necessary to the peace and safety of us all, but all of us, unless we live the lives of mud turtles, frequently find them arrayed against us. All government, he says, is against liberty. Anyway, I'll let you discover the article yourself. Some wonderful quotes from him. Oh, my goodness. These are so good. Where is it? Where is it? There was a, there was a really great quote here about uh, politicians and streetwalkers. I'm not seeing it now. Darn it. That's too bad. That's too bad. Well, here's a good one. If a politician found he had cannibals among his constituents, he would promise the missionaries for dinner. I hope you'll take the time to check it out at the Brian Hyde Show. These are the show notes for November 20th, 2023. And again, the article by Gary Gallas. This is from, let me double check. I believe this is from the Foundation for Economic Education. All right, one final article that I want to share with you today. This is from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, when nearly all governments in the world met their match. And it comes down to two words that describe why the COVID response was so devastatingly wrong. See, the greatest danger wasn't from the virus itself. It was from government attempting to, quote, 
contain and combat the virus. Jeffrey Tucker asks, what was the fundamental error of the COVID response? He says, we've yet to come to terms with it. It traces to a far-flung, completely impossible, and deeply destructive ambition with no defined limits to the measures constructed to achieve it. He says, the goal made no sense at all given the nature of the virus itself. Even to this day, the core of it has not been deeply questioned or even closely investigated. And that is scary. But it comes down to a sentence in Donald Trump's March 13th, 2020 presidential proclamation. And it reads as follows, additional measures, however, are needed to successfully contain and combat the virus in the United States. And there we have it, contain and combat. Jeffrey Tucker says to contain it was impossible, as anyone with a ninth grade understanding of viruses would know. We long before understood that this was a highly transmissible strain. We, he says it was this precisely because it's not medically significant for most people which is to say that they live to pass it on to others, like a flu or the cold or a cold. It has an animal reservoir too, which was also known, therefore containment would be impossible. Still, the goal of containment unleashed a nationwide regime of track, trace, and isolate, in addition to closures, travel restrictions between states, and eventually vaccine mandates and passports. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this vision of respiratory virus containment It's as utopian and far-flung as the ideological inventions of, of Rousseau or Skinner or Marx. It's a pure product of intellectuals with no connection to the realities of the microbial kingdom. He says, to be sure, there are viruses that one can attempt to contain, Ebola, rabies, smallpox if it were not eradicated, and other deadly viruses. Viruses that are behaviorally transmitted like HIV and AIDS can also be contained by changes in behavior. These viruses also happen to be relatively self-containing because they kill their hosts. SARS-CoV-2 was never among them, but again, this was known at the outset. But in the name of containment, vast destruction of the civilized world commenced over the following days. And that word containment has kind of a deep history in the U.S. political lexicon. The doctrine of containment traces to the post-war era when U.S. elites turned on a dime in their attitude toward Russia. The post-war deal-making rewarded Russia for its defeat of Nazism with control of many nations on its borders and also Eastern Europe and the eastern half of Germany. Following this incredible decision, there was suddenly concern that Russia was becoming expansionist. The U.S. military machine shifted from fighting Japan and Germany and the Axis powers to now constraining its ally of just a few years earlier. The switch was so dramatic that whole dystopian novels were written about it. Orwell's 1984 was very likely intended as a spin of the real events of 1948. So this doctrine of containment consumed U.S. foreign policy for half a century, deployed to justify troops in most nations and hot wars in Central America and Afghanistan, including support of the very people who the U.S. later attempted to overthrow in the name of spreading democracy. So containment then became a very effective slogan for U.S. empire building abroad. With COVID, the doctrine of containment came home, except this time with an invisible enemy. It was a new virus, but similar viruses have been with us from time immemorial. As many medical professionals were saying in February of 2020, there are established and workable therapies for dealing with such infections. Mitigating the effects on the population were as simple as following established protocols. 
In other words, there was no reason for war, which gets us to part two, combat. The virus would be combated with additional measures. Three days later, we found out what those would be. Indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. Searching the entire history of U.S. governance, we find no edict so extreme, so intrusive, so disruptive, so completely undermining of all rights and liberties for so many people. That's the essence of what it meant for government to combat the virus in order to contain it. Now, most governments in the world followed the example and they fought the virus by attacking people's right to travel, assemble, engage in normal enterprise, and speak. Since, as we've learned, the censorship efforts began at the very same time. Now, this presidential proclamation was issued the same day as the classified document called PANCAP Adapted U.S. Government COVID-19 Response Plan. This document, revealed many months later, included a flowchart that put the National Security Council in the position of rulemaking while the public health agencies were relegated to operations. By the way, he does include a copy of that flowchart in the article and describes how this was unrolled around the world. i got to kind of skip ahead here, but to contain and combat, that was the goal. What was the result? Well, the virus won, hands down. But do you, do you hear apologies? Is there a reckoning for all the destruction and collateral damage? Generally speaking, no. But this war finally came home in ways that broke the American spirit. It shattered dreams. It wrecked confidence in the future. The war failed, says Jeffrey Tucker, in every way, at least according to its stated aims. But it was still a sure winner for elites. Who were the winners? Well, tech, media, government, and of course pharma came out winners, having redistributed trillions in wealth and vast power from the poor and middle class to the rich and well-connected. Always recommend uh, Jeffrey Tucker's articles. Very well thought out. He was one of the premier voices of reason from the very beginning in all of the COVID madness. And the Brownstone Institute, for what it's worth, is one of the best resources for wrong thinkers if you want to get some truly informed opinion on the matter. Anyway, check it out. My show notes can be found at thebrianhydeshow.com. You're looking for the show notes for November 20th, 2023. This is The Brian Hyde Show.